Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, December 15th, 2022. I'm John Pudhortz, the editor of Commentary, asking you yet again 10 days before uh, Christmas and uh, three or four days before Hanukkah to consider adding commentary to your list uh, when you are planning your annual giving uh, this year at the end of the year, we are a 501c3 nonprofit, so your giving is tax deductible, and we need it in order to produce this daily podcast, to produce the magazine, to produce our website. We depend upon the generosity of our readers and our listeners to continue to provide you with this somewhat form of entertainment. I don't know what you would what you would call our daily uh blatherings uh in your ear but some of you seem to like it and we need your support to keep it going we're very uh, grateful for those uh many of you who subscribe which is a very important element of our continued existence but we also rely on the elemosinary generosity of our donors and please add yourself to that list by going to commentary.org donate that's commentary.org slash donate. We would be very grateful. And by we, I mean executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, on January 17th, 2021, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows received a text from Congressman Ralph Norman of South Carolina. Not Ralph Northam, the governor of Virginia, but Ralph Norman of South Carolina, who happens to be, by the way, a real estate developer, elected first in 2017 or you know, sworn in in 2017 as part of the Trump, I guess, some sort of Trump wave as 17th or 18th richest person in the Congress, real estate developer in South Carolina. Uh, So uh, obviously a canny businessman of some sort. Uh, And this was the text he sent four days before the inauguration or three days before the inauguration of Joe Biden, 11 days after uh, the uh, January 6th uh, horror show uh, was concluded with the actual acceptance of the electoral count and the and the therefore the moment at which Joe Biden became the next president of the United States without any question. Quote, Ralph Norman to White House Chief Staff Mark Meadows. Mark, in seeing what's happening so quickly and reading about the Dominion lawsuits attempting to stop any meaningful investigation, we are at a point of no return in saving our republic, two exclamation points. Our cap, all caps, last hope, and all caps, is invoking martial law, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L, martial law, two exclamation points, and then all caps. Please urge to president to do so, unquote. Um, so this is, uh, these texts have now been revealed as part of this, uh, dump that was given to talking points memo of Mark Meadows, uh, texts. Um, we hear, therefore what we have here is a sitting congressman, uh, sworn to, uh, preserve, protect and defend the constitution of the United States, uh, privately telling 
the White House chief of staff to tell the president to declare martial law. Um, I don't understand why Nancy Pelosi hasn't in her waning days of the Congress that she now controls moved to um, expel Ralph Northam, uh, Ralph, sorry, Ralph Norman from the Congress. This is um, a betrayal of his oath. Uh, we have two people who have been convicted of seditious conspiracy in the United States as a result of their actions on January 6th. This is not simply an expression of a matter of opinion. This is an this is an elected official in the United States urging the representative of the president of the United States to sponsor a coup uh, against the government of the United States and the expressed will of the people. Um, Northam Norman Norman himself uh, attempted to apologize uh, in some fashion uh, yesterday releasing a statement to South Carolina Public Radio that reads, obviously martial law was never warranted. That text message came from a source of frustration on the heels of countless unanswered questions about the integrity of the 2020 election without any way to slow down and examine those issues prior to the inauguration of the newly elected president. I want to remind you, as I'm speaking, that there were 69 lawsuits filed in the United States that went through and were adjudicated by courts between Election Day in November of 2020 and the point at which Ralph Norman claims that there were just so many unanswered questions and we were hurtling, hurtling in the two and a half, in the two months and twelve days between the election uh, and the uh, and the inauguration, hurtling toward uh, a result uh, which was the inauguration of the newly elected president. Um, so he's a lying scumbag. Uh, he's full of it. His staff is full of it. They're as illiterate as he is in the uh, in the drafting of this statement. Man, 18th richest man Congress doesn't know how to spell the word Marshall, which is really, really a fantastic um, uh, credit to his, um, the fact that obviously you can be an illiterate and still make a lot of money in the United States. Uh, I am like, you know, I'm I I am enraged by this as I think you can tell and I just want to know what you guys think of what I'm talking about here. And the fact that he can't spell is illustrative of our good fortune. Um it's and, and the the idiocy with which this uh, coup attempt was prosecuted it has slightly less adroit than the 1991 August coup in the Soviet Union and everybody who participated in it is, you know, the B team. Uh it doesn't mean the A team won't materialize at some point later on. And in fact, quite a few of the people who lost their elections this year probably would constitute a much smarter uh, vanguard of a revolutionary movement had they won their elections. Nevertheless, when it comes to expulsion, that's a really extraordinary remedy that would force you to relitigate the Civil War. Hasn't happened. It's only happened twice since the Civil War. Both times, uh, Michael Meyer and Myers and James Traficant were convicted of bribery. So if there is a standard for expulsion, it is conviction of a criminal charge in a court. Um, and else, otherwise, you'd have to go back to rebellion. And then we'd have to just dig up the whole insurrectionary. Is this an insurrection? Is this a rebellion? Is this a coup? Does it, does it comport with the, uh, with the remedies in the Constitution, post-Civil War remedies in the Constitution for dealing with uh, insurgents and you know, otherwise? Censure is a different matter. 
censure happens on a not regular basis. It's still very rare, but it happens. And it usually involves something pretty extraordinary. Um, most recent was Paul Gozar, Gozer, whatever his name is, who was um, uh, censured for posting a video online of himself attacking Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in an anime video. It's one of the stupidest things you could even discuss. Um, but that's possible. The problem is, is that Paul Gosar is the only person in Congress who ever posted an anime video of himself attacking members of Congress. It's pretty easy to single him out. It's not so easy to single out Congressman Norman. He's one of many people on this text chain who are expressing um, support for, organizational support for, um, some extraordinary unconstitutional remedy to the election. So you'd open yourself up to a much broader debate. So the politics of this are going to make that next to impossible. I, I look, it's obviously not going to happen because if it were going to happen, it would have happened on Monday night when the, you know, when the texts were released. Um, I, I don't necessarily agree with you that others who were also calling for whatever it was that they might've been calling for uh, in these texts to, he explicitly said, uh, I, a representative uh, from South Carolina, want the president of the United States to declare, I am advising the president of the United States to declare martial law in the next three days. But um, I do wonder yeah. if that was an ongoing discussion uh, between him and others, that 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 if there were others who were, who were on board uh, with that, uh, it would seem likely to me. Um, that that didn't come out of nowhere, that he wasn't, that this wasn't uh, his idea alone. I remember no, this talk. Well, this he, is Kraken talk. Well, and he, he look, he's got a gang right now that the gang at this this group of five that's now saying we're going to vote on uh, McCarthy's speakership uh, as a group. It's like these five guys and the five guys are people like Matt Gates, Andy Biggs, Bob Good, Matt Rosendale. I mean, he there he isn't the only one in the House on the GOP side who's a bit of a crackpot. Um, but I, I don't know what sort of uh, clout they actually have. That's a pretty small group in terms of, you know, as, as part of the GOP. But I didn't even uh, to go back to his pseudo apology. That was the I, I I was kind of offended by that apology because it was one of those. I'm sorry if you're offended by what I was texting. It was is much more um, trying to explain away what he was saying instead of actually going. You know what? That was uncalled for. I shouldn't have said that. It was oh, martial law never turned out to be needed. It wasn't. I should never have said that we need martial law. So even his apology was just pardon my uh, French here bullshit. I mean, it it just was. Well, okay, so we actually do have evidence that this was a common conversation because back in April of 2022, we have information that um, Marjorie Taylor Greene texted Meadows and said, in our private chat with only members, several are saying the only way to save a republic is for Trump to call for martial law. Now, remember, wording here is important because she doesn't say he should declare martial law. He says, she says, several are saying Trump should call for martial law. Uh, Norman says Trump should call for martial law. So, uh, a what does that mean? Call that... for martial law. He's the president. Do it or don't. No, 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 no. She's saying that several in the group chat said he should call for martial law. She's not saying she didn't say to Meadows call tell trump to call for martial law that's the difference between her text to Matt Me Me meadows 
and Norman's text to Meadows. But it does indicate that there was this conversation among elected officials about declaring martial law. Now, this gets to this question of, does that does that rise the level of a conspiracy? I don't think so, unless there's some actionable. But the but no, but because the point is Norman Meadows took text, an action because Meadows texts are all blow offs in response. It's the foolish texts are blow offs. The way TPM Talking Points Memo, which broke this, framed the story is that these are Meadows texts, and look at what Meadows is saying in response. Yeah. To all Meadows is just like one word answers, like yeah, yeah. you, you love okay, it, okay, pal. But all the other texts are what's really damning. And they're worse because right. they're members of Congress. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing because, yeah, there's this um, really kind of, I would say, shocking misrepresentation in the Talking Points memo articles about this. Their their hope was that these texts were going to reveal that the White House chief of staff was an active participant in an effort to overturn the results of the election. And clearly they do not show that. What they show is that he was some kind of a gatekeeper all this stuff was being thrown at him, particularly by people that he was in the House with, because Meadows was a was a congressman before he resigned to become White House Chief of Staff or acting White House Chief of Staff, whatever the hell he was. And and basically is just like, you know, is like the sponge that is that all this stuff is or whatever. You know, he's like the he's the thing that all this stuff is sticking to and everyone is trying to go through to get to Trump. Um and uh, and and there is no smoking gun that has him. And if there were, it, that would actually have been the story. And they didn't get that story, so they just sleaze their way into into pretending that that was the story that they got. But that's why I'm focusing on Norman's tweet itself because it's the it's the only real evidence that we have of an actual elected official saying martial law should be declared the president of the united states should stage a coup against his own government and against the uh um peaceful transfer of power from one presidency to the other as a result of a defeat in an election and his excuse is that he was feeling frustrated because the 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 claims about the election were not properly adjudicated when they had been adjudicated this is part of the absolute horror of the way uh, these uh, election deniers go about this is that they they simply pretend that the things that they tried to do to get this before the courts, to have the courts intercede, were not heard, were not properly disposed of, did not have did not get their day in court. They got their day in court all across the United States in many different states and their their pretense that this didn't happen is just disgusting you know and it's more evidence of the way in which the trump disease uh you know has basically turned into a kind of conspiratorial anti-americanism um that is uh, on a scale that we really haven't seen since the Kennedy assassination madness. And this is, it's going to be like the Kennedy assassination madness for the rest of our lives. Like th there is going to be a grift world that is going to hold fast to the idea that the 2020 election was stolen and there will be pamphlets and there will be books and, you know, there'll be 
alternate histories written, all of which will go in this world, will be largely ignored by the, you know, by, by the mainstream, but will bubble under. And every 10 years when Republicans get control of Congress or something like that, somebody will say they want a committee to open up the files to do the duh, blah, blah, blah. And we're never going to be rid of this because it's going to be a moneymaker. And there's an audience for it. I mean, this is dovetails with our conversation yesterday that, you know, maybe the smart move is to redirect this conspiratorial energy into something a little more benign. Um, like, for example, a criminal investigation into Pfizer for having the temerity to deliver us from a pandemic in record time. How dare they? Um, but that doesn't seem to be an especially healthy impulse. It's just not it's it's just not going away. So maybe maybe the best choice is to redirect that paranoia into something a little more productive. I mean, I just think we're now look getting to the complicated part here. Of course, people have the right to free speech. People can say, you know, I think there should be martial law. If Northam of Norman wasn't expressing himself uh, in his role as a congressman, he could say whatever he wanted. And by the way, in his role as a congressman, if he said some of this stuff, uh, depending on where he would say it, he's protected by the speech and debate clause of the Constitution that essentially uh, makes it so that no, you know, no representative of the people is held liable for the things that he, you know, personally or criminally liable for the things he says as he is attempting to uh, debate legislation and the you know government and all of that but there is a double standard question now these are not in the same court and everything like that but if these stumble bum clowns at the oath keepers and stuff like that are going to be thrown into jail and go to jail for seditious conspiracy which i think is perfectly fine uh protecting more powerful and more, you know, and, and richer people and all that from the consequences of the sorts of things that they were saying while throwing the book, you know, at these weirdo, wacko, you know, lunatics um, does smack of a, you know, two, two levels of justice, possibly. Does that make sense to you guys? Well, I th look. I, I think generally speaking, this would be a much bigger story if it if it had broken uh, before the midterms. Uh, its its utility now is isn't it's not as uh, it's not as key to 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 you know uh, democratic hopes. Well, also in the House, uh, which is where which is where Norman would have to be disciplined in some fashion or other, just the, the clock is running out, right? I mean, because the Republicans are going to take control in a couple of weeks. So maybe there is no time and you don't want to like, you know, they do want to try to pass some kind of a a spending bill and do a couple of other things before they leave. And this might be, a, you know, a huge distraction that as Noah says, maybe wouldn't, wouldn't it's such a huge deal to, to actually expel or, even censure reprimand somebody that it would just take up all the time that they had left. And if they had nothing but time and they had somehow managed to hold the house, who knows? 
what could have happened, you know, at that point. But uh, we should talk a little about that. But before we do that, let's uh, let's hear from our sponsor. Do you know only one in three Americans believes we can fully exercise our free speech rights? That's why FIRE is stepping up to protect freedom of expression for all Americans, no matter where you're from or what you believe. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE, knows free speech makes free people. FIRE will always be a principled, nonpartisan, nonprofit defender of your rights. Join the fight for free speech at www thefire.org. There's news and information constantly coming at us from all sides. With this barrage of information, it's difficult to stay up to speed with everything that's happening in the world. Whom can you trust to explain what's going on from a perspective that values both faith and freedom? That's where Acton Unwind comes in, just as there's no other organization that brings you a perspective that values faith, liberty, and free enterprise like the Acton Institute there's no other podcast that tackles the issues of the day in quite the same way as Acton Unwind. Every Monday, you'll hear from host Eric Cohn and experts from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty as they take you through the news of the week in a roundtable conversation, breaking down the issues and the stories that matter and demonstrating that the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free economic activity in a way that's clear, concise, and entertaining. Whether it's about politics, religion, or culture, you'll get Acton's unique outlook on the world, connecting good intentions with sound economics as we promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit acton.org slash commentary or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Acton Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. That's acton.org slash commentary to subscribe to the Acton Unwind podcast. Noah, as our as our good governance uh, uh, panel member and somebody who is uh, interested in the workings of, uh, of government, you you have you've said every day that we should talk about the omnibus spending package and the uh, defense authorization bill these two mammoth uh, the uh, the omnibus spending packages just to you know keep the government going and then there is this um the defense bill which is uh very important and very necessary it used to be a very huge deal uh every year when the defense when the defense budget was being sort of laid out because this was you know the one of the two or three centerpieces of the federal government through most of my you know youth and you know, until my uh, the stirrings of middle age, and in the last twenty years, nobody cares about it. So, um, but I did want to give you a chance to ventilate upon what is going on. Well, the omnibus doesn't really matter in this conversation. Um, it's going to pass. It's a deal that uh, keeps the lights on, avoids a government shutdown. That's its virtue. Uh, and there's a fight over it every single time we do this. Because we don't do budgets anymore. We do CRs, raise the debt ceiling, kick the can down the road, whatever. There's a lot of reasons to be frustrated with this process. I don't begrudge anybody who's frustrated with this process. But we got to keep the lights on and we got to keep ourselves from losing our credit rating. So it's the sort of thing that has to happen. But there's frustrations with it, particularly among Republicans. A lot of Republican members in the House, incoming House majority, say to the Senate, Senate leadership, Put this off. Put it off until we take control of uh, Congress in in January third. Pass a you know a short term CR or something like that. And 
Um, that's the sophisticated version of this argument. And slightly less sophisticated version of it is articulated by more insurgent members of the House to whom uh, the would-be Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, who does not yet have the votes to be Speaker, uh, has to cater. He appeared on um, Fox News Channel Monday night, I think, uh, where he went after Mitch McConnell, you know, just attacking Mitch McConnell for acquiescing to this deal. And it strikes me that this is relevant only insofar as if there's one organizing principle upon which every Republican can agree on, it's that they hate other Republicans. There's no policy proposal that unites the conference in the House or, or the conference in the Senate, for that matter. Um, there's even very few uh uh, hostilities and frustrations they have with the oppo opposition party when you get down into the particulars that unify the entire Congress, especially this new populist iteration of the party, which I maintain Democrats should really test, test the tensile strength of their commitment to uh, dedicating taxpayer dollars to uh, esoteric projects. Um, but, you know, if there is a, a one one theory of everything that gets every Republican to the table is that they hate other Republicans. Now, the Republicans differ depending on who you talk to. But they're all unified behind the idea that their own members are beyond the pale, sabotaging them, responsible for all their the horrors and their lots in life. And McCarthy knows that. And he's capitalizing on it. I don't know if he has any other option, but it doesn't bode well for the future of this uh, Republican majority that the only thing they really get jazzed about gets them out of bed in the morning is to go after their fellow members on their side of the aisle. But you know, you're making this a sort of general case that it's the war of all against all, and I, I don't really see that in the same way. I mean, I think that there is this MAGA wing that hates other Republicans more than it hates anybody else that was you know, uh, defined uh, 10 years ago before Trump uh, by Jim DeMint and his, Jim DeMint uh, in his immortal statement that he would prefer to have 30 good Republican senators than 60 rhinos, uh, thus um, thus uh, revealing that the person, this person who would one day run a think tank, uh, didn't understand the, the elementary workings of government uh, because he was a, a, a insane ideological lunatic and moron altogether, and thus perfect for running a think tank. Uh, but it was a it was a it was an incredibly wonderful distilled statement of you know purpose, um, and so here they are. Kevin McCarthy wants to be Speaker of the House. They have a five they have a four seat majority in the House, and five MAGA lunatics. No, are you sorry? Talking? I'm I'm muted. I'm sorry. Uh, before we move on from from your point, though. Um, you're right. There's a very loud faction on the mega right that has a particular set of Republican they dislike and they won't stop talking about it. But there's a quiet animosity on the other side, too, as evident as evinced oh. by as by election results. As you've written, it's quantifiable. The degree to which Republican voters turned out to vote against Republicans. Yeah. Suggests yeah, that the yeah. hostility is mutual. Yeah. But the yeah. But the but the largest portion of the Republican Party would be very happy to get along with the MAGA portion of the Republican Party, even if they're not in the MAGA portion. All they've been trying to do is figure out a way to get along and to and to sort of, you know, go along to get along and all that. And they are they are denied that prospect by the fact that uh, apparently now uh, Kevin McCarthy, this oleaginous, spineless wimp, um, 
so power hungry that he is willing to say or do anything to hold power, cannot say and do enough to hold power or to achieve power with these people who are the reason that he is an oleaginous, spineless wimp. In order to cater to them and their, you know, and their godhead, uh, you know, he has betrayed every principle he ever held. He has acted in an unseemly and irresponsible fashion. He does not deserve to be a leader, but I, I don't think he deserves to be a leader. They don't like him because he's not oleaginous, spineless, wimpy, and catering to them enough. This gang of five. And what their goal is, is very, very unclear. When there were, when there have been efforts in the past to revolt against speakerships, there was always a vehicle to oppose the speakership with, another candidate who was a plausible candidate to become speaker. Uh, they don't even have a candidate. So anyone can be speaker. All it takes is 218 votes to be speaker. Therefore, the entire Republican coalition will have to vote up on one person. There's no one running against McCarthy. And because of what you're describing, not that they hate the MAGA people, but because they're not going to let one of these people be Speaker of the House. Uh, you know, if one of them does, the vast majority of Republican, the Republicans in the House who would have to vote yes on a speaker candidate like Andy Biggs won't vote yes. So what's going to happen here? This is like clown car stuff. They're, they they want to stop McCarthy from becoming speaker or get him to bend the knee to them. And the, by the way, their version of getting him to bend the knee to them is comic, which is they want the right to vote at any time to oust him as speaker. Right, they want to have this thing where they they are essentially allowed to call a vote of no confidence and oust him as speaker. Well, what good is that? I don't understand what what virtue. First of all, they could do it anyway. Motion to vacate the chair. They don't need to have a motion to vacate the chair. They could literally call the House Republican Caucus into session and you know make public protestations and leaks about this and drive him from office if if that were something that were plausible. They want a motion to vacate the chair so that he can be voted out as speaker. Then what? How how is the fact that they don't have a vehicle to to take McCarthy's place as speaker going to change six months from now when they decide they don't like that he's cast said that he wants to make a deal to move some minor piece of legislation on so the government can stay open or something like that? What is their aim here? Who are these people? Are they just well? They're nihilist? the political look. They're okay. the political version of someone with histrionic personality disorder. So this is they. They need this sort of performative, negative. We're going to stop this. I mean, look at look at the tweets that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and all those types. They're calling this a dirty deal. They're talking about it's so corruption because McConnell's trying to do his job, and they want a continuing resolution so that they can get their hands on the budget. But there, there's always the threat of a government shutdown, right? This is this is what they can, this is a uh, flag they can wave and threaten with. And you look, Republicans have been dumb enough to shut down the government in the past. They would do it again. It would be bad for the Republican Party, but they claim to be speaking on principle. But what they are, what they are truly doing is behaving in a way that doesn't suggest they actually want to govern in a majority, that they they're happier being, you know, rabble rousing backbenchers. There's always been this problem in parties of this size. 
but they now are getting the ear of this speaker. <laughs> and that's not good. Like you actually want the grown up in the room to be like, okay, kids, go sit down, you know, go have your tantrum over there, sit on the step for five minutes and then come back when the timer dings. But McCarthy's not able to do that. You're right. He's spineless. Why? And why do Republicans shut down the government every time? Because some major spending proposal is going to go through and they want to stop it from being implemented or stop right. it you know, altogether. What does this iteration of the Republican Party want? It's not to stop spending bills. This is a big spending party now. Where is it on its sleeve? What are they trying to achieve with the budget process next year? Big spending, but our big spending? Look, the last time there was a government shutdown in 2013, Ted Cruz led the government shutdown in 2013 on the well, ground. that's not true. There have been many a... government shutdowns in the, in the interim. No, no, One of them was, was Democrat-led. No, no, but this was the three-week government shutdown, right? Where literally they were. This was you know, the garbage like, piling up at national yeah, parks and yeah. the Library of Congress closed kind right. of shutdown. Yeah. So that was how to repeal. That was a cockamamie idea about how to repeal Obamacare. Uh, but Obamacare had already passed. It was preventing, which is why it was double. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that that was the doubly cockamamie part of this, which is that it had gone through the democratic process, gone through the democratic process. And there it was. And so, you know, um, I don't know what to say. Like, it, we're, we're in a very weird. So that that was sort of like, OK, let's see what happens. And so for a second or third time, the Republican Party learned Learned the lesson that it is not learning again this time, I think, which is that um, uh, the American people don't want the government to be shut down. Now, in 1995, which was the first government shutdown in, I don't know, you know, decades or even if it hadn't or whatever, I don't even know, maybe it was the only real government shutdown ever. Um, uh, I remember I was, you know, I was in my early 30s and uh, I thought this was really exciting. like. You know, people hated government. We'd all been, they didn't like government. They didn't like the IRS. This was a real chance to stare down Democrats and say, do you really want to spend money like this? And it's worth, you know, it's like a, like a, a, a fulfillment of a long held conservative dream to show Americans that they could function without the federal government being open and that this would sort of change the way people thought about government. And I was an idiot and everybody who thought like me was an idiot because People send go to vote and then they send people to Washington. And why do they do that? To run the government. That's their job is to run the government and the government doesn't get to shut down. You don't get to not go to work and still get paid and not get fired. And they are the same. And they're not allowed to do that. And the country turned so decisively against this untested idea that they were going to really learn something exciting about how unnecessary government was by essentially handing Bill Clinton a second term. It wasn't the only reason, but it was a significant it was a significant moment in Bill Clinton, who had seemed to be on the sidelines and like being written out of history, come back and say, you know, I may be, I may spend too much money and I may have gone too far in this or that other thing, but I didn't shut the government down. And here we are, it's 27 years later, and they're still the same. It's like, get it into your thick heads. 
The American people are not libertarian, you know, are not, you know, the, the Clive and Bundy. They don't think the government should shut down. They like their social security checks. They like, you know, the military, whatever it is. They don't think the government should shut down. You're all crazy. And if this is how, this is the whip hand that Republicans are going to have in themselves, they're like, you know, Cleavon Little with the gun and blazing saddles. You know, putting the gun to his own temple because the people are so stupid they don't know that it's him threatening to shoot himself. Okay. That's my rant. Nothing? Christine, Abe, nothing. Got nothing. I mean, just look, if just if you read the if you read the um, public statements by the people who really want a CR instead of an omnibus bill, it's all, you know, this is this is Republicans seat. This is mainly McConnell and weak Republicans ceding to the overspending demands of of, uh, you know, Pelosi and the and all the Democrats. But there's another sub theme there. If you look at the discussions of defense spending and they don't want they they don't want more aid to ukraine they they are really unconcerned i mean there's even there's there's you know the federalist types are saying like well other countries should defend themselves more why are we spending all this money abroad so there's there's these strains of that that side of the gop that actually you know that that tension is going to continue for the next few years but if you care about national defense the answer isn't to say we need a cr instead of an omnibus bill because we don't want more money going to ukraine so there there are actually policy uh, disagreements that are being um papered over here in this in the loudest voice in the room rhetoric about you know spineless mcconnell etc cetera, etc cetera. but it is true i mean this is unusual in that you know it is a lame duck session they the critics of this are right that there hasn't been uh, as far as I know, an omnibus spending bill passed during a, during well, late. But they Repu should have done this earlier. Like the, the, the Congress is not doing its job on time. That's actually a broader problem here. And Republicans actually won a pretty big victory in the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, right. um, which has I wrote about this the other day. It's become this vehicle where people like throw whatever their their priorities are that didn't make it into the legislative sessions like you know this time they were talking about marijuana banking and fossil fuel permitting and there was this attempt to create this media cartel it was the journalism competition and preservation act all of it didn't make it into the nda blessedly but repealing the mandate for service members to be vaccinated did and good it's about time this is a readiness issue it's a completely unnecessary attack on our armed forces and they won and also it's about, about the armed forces the key thing here this is the national defense authorization act the question of vaccinating the military is a question that involves the armed forces of the united states as opposed to the journalism bank where the federal well, two government different, marijuana bank and journalism cartels right two, yeah. two very different things yeah those really have a lot to do well, the banking thing actually makes a With lot of sense. I'm, I'm, yeah, banking thing's complicated. No, no, but you know what I'm saying. We need to harmonize our banking laws. Nevertheless. Yeah. Um. All right. So, yeah, it's really depressing is all I'm saying. It's very depressing. And I just think you look at, you know, not only was the, not only were the election results disappointing for Republicans, but Republicans are now going to get another shot for yet another point at which they're going to prove that they don't deserve to have a majority. <laughs> Just like they did from 2016, 2017 to 2019 and didn't get much good done 
except for the tax bill, if you like the tax bill, they're just going to show that they don't know what to do with the levers of power when they get them. They don't know what to do and they don't have, they don't offer much to people when they go back to them for re-election to say, boy, we really did a lot for you in our time here in office and they get their hats handed to them. So um, it's a, you know, it's, 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 it's an embarrassment and that's just the, that's just the the way of things. And the fact it's sort of like um, half the time you look at, you know, you look at Biden, you know, stumbling his way through the gay marriage signing bill where you have non-binary British musicians singing, stay with me on the white house lawn. Cause you know, Sam Smith has a whole lot to do with American legislation and the protections of American law for Sam Smith, who was a British citizen. Well, Biden's forgotten he 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 was on board with the Defense of Marriage Act when he was a senator. Like he says a lot of things Biden seems to have yeah. forgotten he used to support. Yeah. yeah. But um, you know, I'm really glad that Lady Gaga, Cindy Lauper, and Sam Smith were there to celebrate the fact that gay marriage, which has already been protected, you know, has you know, is exists in every states of the union and all of that. I'm really glad. Congratulations Can we to Biden one, for having but, a horrible, you know, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame award uh, honor roll concert on the White the, House lawn. The, the the thing about that press conference, that whole signing thing that was disturbing to watch is how he and this is the Democratic Party's line going forward, I assume, if he's articulating well, kind of inarticulating it uh, as he did yesterday. They are completely linking um uh, transgender issues to gay marriage equality in a way that I think is, first of all, it, it's not clear to me that people who support gay marriage still su would support something like a 12 year old being able to have, you know, uh, top or bottom surgery to, to, to live as a, as the sex that they were not born into. Um, but the violence rhetoric that, you know, if we don't do this, everyone will be under attack, the kind of siege mentality uh, with no actual supporting data to show that that is the case. And the absolute linking of, of you know, as you say, John, something that's that's been the law of the land for a while to something that is highly controversial right now in this country that has not been subject to to clear uh, debate in many parts of the country. And that I guess as a cultural matter, the Democrats are assuming everyone's going to treat the same the same way as they treated gay marriage. I don't think that's true. I think they're making a very dangerous gamble there. But the fact that he's linking that, and I've heard this, you know, among other sort of Democrat and progressive groups, this is now the new thing. It's like if you support gay marriage, you must also support children being allowed to transition from one from one sex to the other and, and whatnot. So that's something to watch. I think that's something I think voters are going to want to have their say on down the line. So that's a very good point, and I guess we should end on that. So because it was so good, we don't have anything more to add. So we will be back tomorrow for Abe, Christine, and Noah. I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>